I'm not watching. I haven't. I'm not seeing it. Look, it's a hoax. The whole impeachment thing is a hoax. Uh, we look forward to getting on to the Senate. What is central here is do we want a dictator? No matter how popular he may be, no matter how good or bad the results of his policies may be, no president is supposed to be a dictator in the United States. Certainly there are daily admissions of guilt by Giuliani, a guilt that implicates the president as well. But uh, I would put a higher priority on people like Mulvaney and Bolton and others. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So you know how you're supposed to make an emergency plan with a go bag and Z-packs and soylent drinks and maybe a shotgun for making meals of possum you kill yourself? You're supposed to do all that should the environmental or nuclear apocalypse come. Okay, I wanted to do something similar in the event of a political apocalypse. Chances are Trump will slide through the Senate without being censured, much less removed. And then, if passed as precedent, he'll keep on cheating. And if he cheats enough and our vigilance about cheating falters, even huge anti-Trump turnout may not be enough to make up for voter suppression, gerrymandering, the profound discrimination enacted by the Electoral College, and the brain damage inflicted on American voters by disinformation and gruesome media distortions committed in the name of both sidesism. So he wins. He gets another four years. Influenza turns out to be bronchitis, turns out to be lung cancer. But why am I trying for metaphors? It's alarming enough just to consider the actual literal possibility Trump gets reelected. Jerry Nadler says we'd be facing dictatorship, and certainly America would be downgraded to dust on the liberal democracy meter. Just because the apocalypse or terrorist attack probably won't happen doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare. And this re-election thing seems far more likely than either of those possibilities. So here's my plan for now. I think I'll reorient Trumpcast to talk about Trump and Trumpism's specific material effects on the poor, the workers, and the disenfranchised, and what especially can be done to improve their lives and well-being. And I hope... In this horrible event of a Trump re-election, you will still continue to tune in. If Trump's not re-elected, of course, we'll all have a big finale together. But to the end of helping in material ways, if Trump gets re-elected, I also want to go back to school for a degree in social work. And I just want to say that here. I want to do that with the intention of working in New York City and as best as possible, identifying with my city and not with the American federal government. Of course, I'll fight like hell for candidates in Congress and down the tickets, but I need to face the possibility that a re-election will represent a true paradigm shift in America and my life will have to shift with it. It somehow feels better to me to think that way. I mean, I don't have reserves of Soylent or a cement summer home, but I do like thinking that as individuals and communities, we could all survive and find ways to be productive and of service, no matter what happens within the space of that small radius in the District of Columbia. Okay, now back to admitting the election is still 11 months away and Trump is facing impeachment and indictments whenever he doesn't have the GOP human shield, and there are still ways re-election could be averted. We have miles to go before we sleep. Today I'm walking some of those miles with Eric Columbus, a lawyer and former Senate Judiciary Counsel who served in the DOJ and DHS under Obama. He's a fantastic fellow to follow on Twitter at Eric Columbus, and he's going to help me disentangle the apathetic, aimless, spineless Republicans in the Senate and why they can't seem to stand up to Trump. 
Eric, welcome to Trumpcast. Glad to be back. I like talking to you and hearing your voice because your style on Twitter is the thing that I always want to call laconic, but that's not the right word for it. You have repose. You have a balance. (laughs) But I wonder, because we're talking about harrowing subjects like the end of liberal democracy, what you actually sound like when you talk about impeachment, because we haven't talked voice to voice about the state of affairs. About impeachment. I like your pinned tweet right now. You've got the simplest argument for impeachment removal. Are you still sticking with this? Is this the fewest words you can do it in? Trump pushed Ukraine to investigate Biden. When he got caught, he said China should do it too. If not removed, he'll keep trying to subvert the election. I could do it in far fewer words. He uh, corruptly withheld aid to an ally to win re-election. Yes. But you say here that the bribery extortion is just icing on the cake, which is something that the constitutional scholars who testified were very clear about, I thought. Yes, exactly. And that means two things. First, it means that the back half of the quid pro quo is not even necessary for this to be uh, impeachable conduct, just merely asking them to do it, even without any of the kind of like tough guy extortion element, should be enough to remove them from office in in a better world. And also, secondly, that you don't need a crime in order to impeach someone and remove uh, the president. But of, of course, there is a crime here. There are probably several, as the House noted in its lengthy impeachment report that they released a couple of days ago. And, and the Republicans, by saying, oh, there's no crime, they didn't charge a crime here, it kind of neglect how impeachment charges are often drawn up. It's not the headline that matters, it's the text. And there's ample evidence there of Trump having done very bad things that he could well be indicted and prosecuted for. You, I think, uniquely among our guests, did a very close reading of that impeachment. What is it called? Impeachment report by the House. There have been so many reports. There was the Intelligence (laughs) Committee report. Then there was the Constitutional Grounds report that the Judiciary Committee did. And then most recently, the Judiciary Committee's just final report. I mean, I think you've read them all closely, but what I want your analysis of is the Judiciary Committee's report, because that's the one that, as you point out, and I think in concert with someone else on Twitter, does contain bribery charges. Yeah, even the text of the Articles of Impeachment contain the elements of bribery. Yeah. You don't even need to go beyond that. In an actual prosecution, one reason why, rather the stated reason why the Department of Justice did not pursue a criminal investigation after the whistleblower's report reached them, and I don't know whether they said this on the record or whether it's just been reported, is that they didn't believe that aid to Trump's re-election campaign could be a, quote, thing of value mm-hmm. under campaign finance law. Mm-hmm. And the same term is used in, in the bribery statute, and I suppose one could argue on both sides of that issue, but if you're at the point where you're debating the technicality of whether aid to the president President's re-election campaign counts as a thing of value for the purpose of a criminal statute, then you're probably well past the point where you should probably think about impeaching the president. I feel like what Trump asked for, sort of the more we look into it, what would have satisfied him was essentially an attack ad on Joe Biden, and a price can be put on a successful attack ad. He wanted Zelensky to, you know, have this press conference, whatever the invest quote investigation was going to look like. He wanted him to appear on TV and say bad things about the Democratic frontrunner, 
cast aspersions on him, dirt on him. And that, to me, looks like an expensive attack ad that he was about to give for free. Yeah, I think that's right. But as you say, we don't need to look into any of that because the case, as they say on the Great British Baking Show, I don't know if you ever look at that, but is overproved, in my view, the case for impeachment. And yet that isn't stopping McConnell from doing more than dawdling. I mean, from... God, putting his head in cement and then maybe waiting for the cement to dry and then bashing everyone around with it? What do you think's the metaphor here? What's he doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he doesn't want to do anything. The prospect of an impeachment trial is not something that he relishes in any way, understandably. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important to note that he can't really quash it or make any decisions by himself. He needs a majority. Yeah. He needs 51 senators. He has 53 in his caucus. And if he loses a few, then the trial will look very different from what he has been insisting on. Any group of 51 senators can agree to hear witnesses, can vote in favor of a motion to call witnesses, either either to, you know, live in a trial or as it happened in the, in the Clinton impeachment saga via deposition that will be played at the trial itself. The Chief Justice, in theory, is presiding, but he can be overruled by 51 senators. He also, I'm sure, does not relish this job at all. Mm -hmm. And he will probably, in the first instance, defer to senators as much as possible to avoid getting involved and looking partisan Mm -hmm. uh, and also to avoid being overruled because no one likes that. These daily speculations on which of the potentially sane who's like there might be a non-sclerotic part of the brains of Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, but the daily watching to see if they've been fully body snatched and they're going to go along with McConnell and be in lockstep with him or maybe they won't or maybe they will. I hate that. I just don't want to live in that dimension. Once again, I'm fumbling for an analogy, but it feels like trying to teach recalcitrant students who just keep failing the test. It doesn't have anything to do with my teaching skills or the material. There's just a certain, I don't know, I just hate trying to read them. I almost feel like it flatters them to pay too much attention to the senators that once seemed like they were sane. Well, there's the old Upton Sinclair line about okay. how it's difficult to convince a man of something when his salary depends on his not believing it. That's right. And that applies to a good number of these senators. It certainly applies to people like Ben Sass, who mm-hmm. uh, is despises Trump but is up for re-election uh, this mm-hmm. year, and mm-hmm. it depends upon his support. But there is a good chunk of, of Republicans who uh, are not up for re-election this year and are are probably not up for re-election ever because they are either they have announced they are going to retire or they, they probably will retire. And that's where I think you could see some defections. Uh, and they may not be defections that are going to announce themselves, but they may be kind of whispering to Mitch and leading to some type of a deal with Schumer. And they don't even need to be people who viscerally dislike Trump mm-hmm. or who would vote for his removal or who even feel that it's necessary to have a, you know, a fair trial in some sense. But they might be people who see it from a somewhat different perspective, who are troubled by Trump's attempts to just run roughshod over Congress throughout mm-hmm. this entire process mm-hmm. by not cooperating at all with the oversight requests mm-hmm. made by the House. 
And they may not agree that it's, it's impeachable. That is, they may think that Article 2 of the impeachment articles is ridiculous, but they may feel like, look, we need to kind of draw a line in the sand and not let Trump skate here with having produced literally zero documents to Congress mm-hmm. and with preventing a huge number of witnesses from testifying. Our mutual friend Karen Schwartz says the chief policy accomplishment of this administration so far has been the obstruction of justice. They just work tirelessly. It's like what they do instead of infrastructure is build kind of Hoover dams against justice. I'm viewing from a little bit of a different angle in terms of what might motivate these Republicans who, who could kind of come over and try to make this a real trial in that they may not like seeing the balance of power between the executive branch and Congress tilt so mm. much. I naively said from the beginning that some of these guys, they have to have some alpha streak in them, some Bob Corker in them that just really doesn't like being pushed around. I mean, I was ingenuous enough to suggest, I think, on this show that McConnell would be mad that the support for Ukraine was withheld since that was something the Senate had approved. Trump going around them, bashing them in the media, that that would wear them down. And not wear them down in some kind of moral way where they'd rise up, but just they'd feel hazed and humiliated and circumvented. And they do feel those things to some extent, but McConnell doesn't feel it enough to push back in part for political reasons. And in part, the one thing that McConnell actually likes about Trump is that Trump doesn't really have a huge policy agenda and generally Mm. lets McConnell do what he wants. That's right. Well, I still think his policy agenda is the obstruction of justice, but that's in McConnell's wheelhouse. But okay, so you worked at DOJ and DHS, and so you know much better than I do. We do have Trump dissenters and fectors kind of from the current Republican Party. They haven't flipped. I'm not talking Justin Amash. But I mean, people who didn't run again, and people were pretty clear that they were not going to stand, as Jeff Flake put it, four square with the president. One of those is Jeff Flake, who's talked about how 35 Republican senators have said they'd vote against Trump. They'd vote to remove him if it were a secret ballot. So that's Flake. And then Corker, who's been unnaturally quiet, but who also maybe talks to Sass or talks to some of his former colleagues and ideally brings them some clarity. Or do you think that the current sitting senators steer clear of those rebels? I don't know, because they're working on this play, this kind of football play with the people actually on the field. Well, I mean, there are very few dummies in the U.S. Senate. I mean, mm-hmm. people who are out to lunch and, and don't know what's going on. I mean, these guys are not unaware of what's happening, and they will have a choice to make that reflects their views about Trump and also their own political concerns and concerns about retaliation from Trump. I mean, even for some of those who are retiring, like, say, Lamar Alexander, Trump is vindictive enough to torpedo projects in Tennessee if he mm. could, if he feels that he's crossed by Senator Alexander. Uh, and so this is not a normal guy we're talking about, mm-hmm. of course. And yet there still could be kind of with, with quiet conversations with McConnell that may make clear that McConnell doesn't have the votes for a zipless trial, shall we say. Yeah, right. People keep using that word. Is it because Molly Jongfast, daughter of Erica Jong, is so much in the news and her mother coined that in another context? I assume that's why it came <laughs> (laughs) to my mind. (laughs) 
So what is troubling you most right now? I mean, I decided to let my imagination go completely to he skates on this impeachment stuff and then is reelected because, as you say, he's still cheating. This whole thing is about him cheating to win in 2020. And that's chilling. And everybody, including Jerry Nadler, says we would land in something like dictatorship if that's true. I mean, I don't know. Are you like fearing the thousand year Reich or are you able to go a step at a time? Uh, I'm, I'm able to go a step at a time. I mean, there are many steps before dictatorship, certainly, uh, but they're not good steps. They're not happy steps. And if the president is given the green light, essentially, to do these things in 2020 and finds other countries to help him do it and gets reelected, then he'll have all the more incentive to do it again in 2024 when he's not on the ballot, but his legacy is and possibly his personal freedom. God knows what crimes he might commit uh, during a second term. So you have a cycle that could perpetuate itself even when he's not on the ballot. It's a bad day when Trump tweets about you or goes on the attack after someone. But I'm not totally sure that for fear of that, someone as I like some kind of alpha figure should not risk crossing him, even Lamar Alexander. I mean, he, you know, he plays that lean forward park chess where you're just trying to intimidate the other person but don't have tournament chess skills, in my view. And it seems like if you wait him out, you know, look to Yavanovich, look to Fiona Hill, look to Rosie O'Donnell, you know, Kathy Griffin, anyone he's hassled for a day or two, it is a bad quarter of an hour. But his hands are too tied, I think, to wreck life for Lamar Alexander. But the greater danger is that he has somehow convinced us that he can just single-handedly crush people and ruin their lives. I mean, it's an interesting question, and, and certainly the, the people you mentioned uh, have survived and in some cases thrived being attacked by Trump. Yeah. None of them obviously are up for re-election, but though, as, as we discussed, nor is Lamar Alexander, who mm-hmm. presents really kind of a puzzling situation. It, it could be that he's, as I suggested, that he's afraid of Trump retaliating against the state of Tennessee. It could be, and I have no idea whether this is the case, maybe Alexander has kids or grandkids or relatives who want to have a future in Republican politics, and he doesn't want to do anything that might uh, sidetrack them. Yeah. Um, Which I think is one reason why Jeb Bush has not been as outspoken as he might be, because his son, George, is is a rising star in Texas. I hate that because that has been the lesson of the last three years is all the things that keep people speaking up, not in some like go to the Bastille way, but in just elementary ways, speaking truth to power, because they have an outsized idea of what someone like Les Moonves might do to their lives. I mean, every time I hear about a Me Too, some Me Too person in some new circle that I don't know much about, doctor, whoever, I just am amazed that people in their little fiefdoms wield so much power that people spend decades making decisions simply for fear of what this person might do. It's true. It does seem amazing from the outside. And I, I don't know about you, but I personally have never been in that situation, any of these situations. It's difficult to know how one would react when it's on you, when it's your career that could be impacted, when standing up and doing the right thing comes at a true personal cost. It's easy for me to say, oh, of course, I would be at the barricades, but would I? Uh, 
I hope I would. Yes. I think that the cortisol levels are so high that we imagine that Trump is going to, you know, Jeb Bush could imagine that Trump could murder his son because the threats seem everywhere from him. He's just he's so maximally invasive, you know, as um, my old colleague Yasha Monk used to say, that it's like it's coming from all sides. But we did have a good model in your former your former employer colleague, um, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, about how to handle the nonstop furnace of hate from Trump. I mean, every time I see a picture of Hillary Clinton, she, there's an upcoming documentary about her on Hulu that I'm looking forward to, where she just you just imagine that she was looking at T-shirts that said, hang the bitch, and hearing the deafening sound of lock her up for a year, and just kept on walking along, seeing pictures of herself represented as Satan, seeing rape imagery, having herself be called a pedophile. And, you know, there is a sticks and stones approach to this. But look what happened. I mean, she lost. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sadly, she lost. And the lesson there is that Trump did not pay a price for all the hatred and craziness that he incited. She lost, but not because she was insufficiently fearful and cowed by that harassment. That's the point. Yes. And the fear, Jebus Bush fear is obviously not that, that Trump is going to, you know, physically harm George P. or, or even dig up dirt on him, but rather that the, the people who are so allied with Trump will turn against anyone who criticizes him. And Mm -hmm. when Mark Sanford lost his primary last year, I think that was a wake-up call for a lot of congressional Republicans who saw Sanford as a, whatever his other flaws, uh, was being fairly honest about Trump from time to time, and he lost the primary. But then there have been others. There have been the Kentucky governor. There have been Roy Moore, obviously. There have been people that Trump has campaigned for and then dropped like wet rags when they lose who sort of demonstrate the opposite. With this maximally invasive president, it is possible to imagine that he's a personal existential threat. And there really is a kind of new mindset required, I think. And Hillary Clinton's one person to look to. I was on a panel with Adam Schiff. I see how I'm dropping that. And Adam Schiff, thank you, a couple of years ago, he had just started to get death threats from the Red Hats. And he said that he went to Nancy Pelosi kind of trembling to say, what can we do? I'm getting so many death threats. And she said, welcome to the club. You know, what's amazing is someone like Adam Schiff that could be thrown and moreover, someone like Robert Mueller, who in many accounts of the investigation, and I don't know how true all of them are, but they dovetail one from within the FBI, another one from Michael Wolff's book, say that he was legitimately scared and thrown at this stage in his life to be called a pedophile, to be harassed and trolled in public. I think of Marie Yavanovich saying, you know, the president tweeting about me. It just is somehow terrifying. My point is not whether it is or isn't terrifying. It could certainly wreck a long phase of your life and be quite disconcerting. But whether that fear ought to be motivating in highly consequential decisions, like what to say about Trump. I mean, Bob Corker survived it. Why can't uh, Mitt Romney take the risk? Well, Mitt Romney is, I think, uniquely qualified. If Mitt Romney's only goal is to remain in the Senate, he's got that job for life. He could relieve himself on the floor of the Senate and still be reelected uh, <laughs> in, in, in five years from now. He's not on the ballot until 2024. Yeah. I wonder whether Romney, though, has, has presidential aspirations. I mean, the guy's in great shape. He'll live until 150. He might be uh, thinking about running for president in 2024. Yep. And if he does, then there's no way he's voting to remove the president. But who knows? 
what do you think about this flake thing about the 35 senators that would vote to remove if it were a secret ballot, which suggests to me that whatever else is going on, the case is overproof for impeaching and removing the president. So we're not discussing it on its merits. We're discussing optics when it comes down to who's going to remove or vote to remove. Flake made that comment, I assume, a while ago. Or, or did he? Is it was it recent, or is it when he was still a senator? Oh no, no, no! It was he was out, but it was after the impeachment inquiry was announced. Okay, so it was recent. I mean, I think that if people could snap their fingers and make Pence president and have everyone life continue as it was before, you would get thirty-five votes for that. I think, though, some might be afraid that Pence as president would make it harder for them to retain the presidency in in the election, mm-hmm. uh, and that might be motivating some of this, in addition to their own kind of fear of Trump's supporters turning Mm -hmm. on them, is the fear that it would either fracture the Republican Party or stain the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And it did the latter in the case of Nixon. There was no cult of personality around Nixon to anything like there is now with Trump, but the stain on the party hurt them. It led to huge midterm losses in 74 and then the loss of the presidency in 76, although that partially influenced by President Ford's pardon of Nixon. Mm-hmm. But I would say that President Pence might not be able to track the same white working class enthusiasm that Trump has and might not have the same kind of mesmerizing hold on voters. And Trump himself would perhaps gleefully be trying to torpedo Pence. I like the suggestion that there might be some rationality and linearity and considerations among Republicans, even who are convinced that Trump has committed offenses for which he should be removed. I like thinking that they are not just acting for fear of some red hats spray painting their lawn or saying that their dog is a, is a pedophile or whatever. But I like the idea that they might be considering something like the future of the party, it just makes me think that these brains are not as panicked as they seem. Did you see the op-ed today by the newly named Lincoln Project, the new PAC? I did, yes. Yeah, what'd you think of that? They're going, and they would certainly admit this, for a certain slice of Trump supporters who they believe can be peeled off. I mean, the ones who are more educated, probably wealthier, I mean, not the white working class parts of it. You know, more power to them. I mean, we can use all the help we can get. I mean, they're going to be raising money and running ads, and every vote counts if they have a way to kind of target the Midwest, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. That would be wonderful. Everyone from the news today was a lot about the needle hasn't moved or has even moved down on impeachment as far as popular support goes. But I just wish that we would relentlessly push the fact that there is a completely galvanized part of the population that wants this president removed and out, you know, ideally removed and failing that voted out. The numbers are at revolutionary levels. There was only a small pack of people that wanted the French Revolution and even the American Revolution. And we have (laughs) almost 50 percent that want to depose the president. I mean, just to topple him. That is just a psychic risk, whether or not you're risking getting trolled by Trump. For rank and file voters, just even to think You know, sometimes you just want politics to go away, but for rank and file voters, but this is just a lot. It's a lot to sign on to. I want to remove the president. And on top of that, to have academic historians and we can laugh all we want, but, you know, setting up a coherent case from American history about why Trump needs to be removed today. And then these Republicans who are, you know, ideologically conservative making the case. And then we saw five representatives, congressmen and women from frontline states saying they'll support impeachment. These are Democrats, but they're both 
votes were in the balance. America hates Donald Trump. Why can't we just face it? <laughs> well, I, one thing that I find interesting in the polling, at least in the one poll that I looked at at this, you have a greater percentage of people who are, there are people who believe that what Trump did was wrong, but that he should not be impeached and removed for it. And that, hopefully, is something that we can take with us toward November and point out, like, you know, look, maybe you, maybe you didn't want to impeach and remove Trump. Maybe you thought it was before his time. Maybe you thought it was too divisive. Maybe you reason, look, there's an election 11 months away, but please keep in mind what he did and the things that he did that you, you thought were wrong. And as you go to the ballot box, consider whether you're okay with having that man empowered to do the same things for the next four years. I mean, the Republicans I've talked to, even one who said, you know, she said no in a poll to impeachment and removal, lifelong Republican, you know, she wrote in Kasich last time and she intends to, says she intends to vote for Bloomberg or hope he gets the nomination this time so she can. But there's no chance that someone like her, even saying no impeachment, no removal, wants him for another four years. I mean, in some ways, what's left of the kind of silent majority or the silent minority of Republicans, electoral college majority, they're so in favor of quiet. In favor of quiet? You know, of just let this madness end. Put some competent leader in charge. And so I don't have to keep talking about this at every book club. (laughs) And that's how I felt at the end of Clinton. You know, serve out your shift and go home. Well, yeah, that's why the phrase Clinton fatigue yes. popped up. And that's when it popped up, I assume. And certainly Trump fatigue is alive in the land. All right. One last person I want you to speculate on. He's someone that just really brings the odiousness, in my view. Bill Barr. Bill Barr. I was once in a TV studio and, and talking to a reporter off camera who said that he had known Barr for a while. And before Barr's return to be attorney general, and he described Barr as, quote, a shit stirrer, Hmm. by which he meant, not necessarily in a pejorative way, that Barr was someone who kind of uh, liked to provoke people, liked to get things going, liked to stir things up in ways that might be a little trollish, and that, you Hmm. know, he, he liked Barr personally and had enjoyed talking to him through the years. But we see a little bit of that in the way Barr has been acting in his speech to the Federalist Society. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a great need to please anyone. Um, he certainly wants to please the president, but he enjoys being, I think, a figure of controversy and getting people like us riled up. Someone sent me recently an old episode of The Open Mind on PBS. I think it's one of the oldest shows continually produced with Donald Barr, Bill Barr's father, who was regularly on the show to talk about education. And he was there with Dr. Spock of the Trust Yourself Baby Manuals. And Dr. Spock's the 70s. And Dr. Spock is basically saying we should love our children and care for our children. And true to the shit-stirring quality of his son, Donald Barr would say... Really? Maybe we should try something else. You know, I mean, it's like the, the banality of, you know, maybe crimes should be illegal. And then the response of, you know, I'm Bill Barr. I'm not going to show up for my subpoena. And I'm not sure I agree with you on the crimes being illegal. I still am curious, and we've never gotten the answer to what was up with Bill Barr's secret meeting with Rupert Murdoch a month or two ago. It makes you shudder, right? I don't know. And he, to me, is the force majeure that came in on the Mueller report that we could never have predicted in this very methodical investigation. We could never have predicted that someone would bigfoot down on it and tell the people it said what it didn't say from a position of authority. I mean, it's certainly the spin he put on it 
coupled with a delay in getting the report out, definitely affected the ensuing public reception of the facts. My guest today has been Eric Columbus. He was an Obama appointee at the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, former Senate Judiciary Counsel, and an all-around great guy. Thanks for being here, Eric. Thank you, Virginia. Always a pleasure. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Find us on Twitter. Let's connect for real. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.